Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Is there a difference between a fool and a wise man? Does a man who acts correctly gain advantage over one who stumbles? What has the preacher in Jerusalem to do with the suburbs in Minnesota? Richard and I continue our discussion of Ecclesiastes. This week's episode is dedicated to my father, Paul Bulos, who died on May 29, 2015. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 72 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about my dad's hospice. We talked about his life within the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, and as if to preach Ecclesiastes with more force, the Lord took my father on May 29th, 2015, at three o'clock in the morning. It was a good death, painless, blameless, and peaceful, and it revealed my father to be the person he was, which was a man who loved his children, all of his children, and who loved anyone who came near him, and who wanted to provide for everyone around him and to ensure that everyone was taken care of. I'm extremely thankful for his death and the manner in which he died, and I feel extremely thankful for his generosity and for the deep assurance he gave all of us that he loved us and that all was well. May his memory be eternal in the actions of you and your siblings and your children, that their actions may always be according to the gospel. And may the gospel be preached everywhere in his name. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We've asked the big questions in chapter 1. The king now goes about his experiment. He wants to figure out what's a good way of living. I said in my heart, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. So he goes with his experiment the question, but also the answer. He starts off by saying, okay, I'm going to go and enjoy pleasure. He's a king. He's rich. He's got everything he ever wants, but it's vanity. Put that on your bumper sticker in the United States. Go enjoy pleasure. It's all vanity. I really wish that Thomas Jefferson was more beholden to Ecclesiastes when he talked about the pursuit of happiness, something that my father was a great critic of, actually. I visited Thomas Jefferson's home and his library in Monticello and went to the home of his law professor, and they talked about all the languages that Thomas Jefferson spoke, but one language that was conspicuously missing was Hebrew. I'm not surprised, but I am disappointed. Such was the education of the Enlightenment generation. They looked to the Greeks. They looked to the classic philosophical tradition of Hellenism. And if they looked to Scripture, it was only through the shadowy haze of their formation and Greek philosophy. And that's a shame 
because had Thomas Jefferson known Hebrew, things may have been different. But anyways, here we are. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I saw it in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heavens all the days of their life. He tried having fun, he tried drinking, and still trying to pursue wisdom, and it didn't work. You cannot have a life of pleasure that is a life of wisdom. In the United States, an opportunity that we've missed is all the refugees and immigrants who come to this country from very difficult circumstances, who come here with a kind of wisdom which the culture makes impossible to pass to the next generation because the next generation is concerned about their clothes and about their electronics and are not interested in the wisdom of their parents. People cannot leave the church and go home in their air-conditioned cars to their air-conditioned living rooms to turn on the football game and to sit on their couch and eat food that was prepared for them. They can't do that and also hear the gospel. It's incompatible. Having a pursuit of pleasure, having a life of pleasure is incompatible with wisdom, is incompatible with the gospel. I even hear in this country, oh, you know, we shouldn't focus on the suffering of Jesus. We should really focus on his glorification. The reason why is because we can't understand his suffering, because we can't take not having an extra blanket at the foot of our bed because it might get chilly at night. We have to understand what discomfort is before we can begin to understand what the gospel might be presenting to us. So I made me great work. I build in myself houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them, all kind of fruits. This is a way of making a very pleasant place. Before air conditioning, if you were in a very hot, arid place, the way that you would have a cool place to relax would be to create a garden with water that would cool the air and with trees and with plants that would offer fruit but also would cool the area for you. This is how he wanted to create his living room, so to speak, his parlor. This is his garden that he wanted to create. So that's why he built houses with gardens. I made pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Notice that he made the pools of water and that he's trying to make something grow. It's an interesting play on, once again, the agrarian metaphor of scripture. He's watering something to make something, but what is he making and will it bear fruit? That's the question. I got me servants and maidens, in other words, slaves to his household. Male slaves and female female slaves. slaves. And had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts so I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem boy he really sounds like he's from the Midwest he's definitely a suburbanite I mean yeah. he, he's, he's a king in Jerusalem but he's a suburbanite in the United States don't you know Father Mark that all of my ancestors slaved and suffered and worked so that everything would lead up to me I don't know about my children but everything led up to me I am the pinnacle of everything that ever was. He's clearly, in his homily here, ridiculing people who pursue wealth. He had a lot of cash, probably had a 401k. He had lots of singers 
He had the musical instruments, so he had a really nice sound system. He had air conditioning. He had people doing stuff for him. I mean, he had a great house all set up with a nice cash reserve so he could buy whatever he wanted. He had everything all cut out for him in the same way that we understand this so-called pursuit of happiness in this country. Yet in this country, like you said, it was not considered the absence of wisdom. It was not considered folly. It's considered something very good, but this pursuit of happiness and the way that he's doing this is just folly, as he said. But also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. So he took joy and received reward from the work of his own hands. If I work this hard, I should be able to enjoy my money. This is also a critique of even a simple laborer, because how often have you heard a craftsman say there's nothing like the pride you feel after you've made a chair or mowed the lawn or planted a garden? But all of that is vanity. All of that is undermined by this text. Then I looked at all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. That's what he's been saying all along. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, For what can the man do that cometh after the king? Even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. So there's no comparison here between wisdom, which is the gift of God, and foolishness, which is the gift of man's striving. And this is, after all, what Paul is arguing in the New Testament that you can chase after death, you can chase after your own end by taking pleasure in the work of your own hands, as he does here, or you can seek the wisdom which comes from God, which to you, from your perspective, looks like folly. Wisdom is knowing that wisdom won't matter. Wisdom is knowing that it all comes to an end. Wisdom is knowing the real difference between life and death. That's where we're going. He's working so hard to make something of his life, to earn something so he can enjoy his life. And what the king here keeps realizing is that whatever you're doing about your life, the fact that it's your life means that it will end when you are dead. Your life will end in death. And this is the king. The king says, I'm going to look at everything from foolishness to wisdom, the whole spectrum. I want to see it all. And I'm the king. I've got all the time and resources at my disposal. I can examine this in a way that no one else can. But guess what? By working harder, I find out that I had to work hard. It was kind of difficult. And what did I get out of it? Nothing more than the simple shepherd tends his flock in the field. (laughs) That's the reality. Right. That's the power of this text. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happens to them all. In human terms, the wise man and the foolish man are as different as you could possibly imagine. But guess what? When you go to the cemetery, It's all the same lump of dirt. You cannot, at the cemetery, tell the difference between the foolish man and the wise man. Whereas here, we spend all our time, I mean, look, at work. Oh, that person knows what they're doing. That person doesn't know what they're doing. That person's making a thousand times more than that person because they know what they're doing. All the wisdom and knowledge and everything, it makes every difference in our life. But in death, it makes no difference at all.
Then I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, so it happens even to me. And the irony is that that statement is wisdom. It's the wisdom that Ecclesiastes is preaching. And why was I then more wise? So it is wise to ask the question, what makes me more wise? Knowing that the same end comes to the fool and the wise men makes you wise. So it is not a worldly wisdom that you try to strive toward in order to gain something. It's the wisdom from God to know that a man gains nothing under the sun. That's the key. Your treasure, as Matthew says, is in the heavens. And I like the plural when it's rendered in English because it stresses two key points in Matthew. First, it calls to mind Abel, vanishing breath, something you can't grasp, but also that the heavens are beyond the reach of man's striving, just as all of creation is beyond the reach of man's striving in Ecclesiastes. That is where your reward is, beyond your reach, you know, as the wind blows to and fro and so forth. Then I said in my heart, that also is vanity, for there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how does the wise man die? As the fool. So what happens is all the remembrance of the wise all the remembrance of the fool is going to be gone. What's going to be left of all the striving? The wise man makes all the striving to be wise. But what's going to be left? The fool is going to strive after stupid things. What's going to be left? Again, a hunk of dirt, a pile of dirt. And how does the wise man die? In the same way as the fool. Therefore, I hated life. And this verse really captures the response of the nihilist and the narcissist to the gospel. I'm talking about Paul's gospel now, because when Paul preaches that you can't earn the kingdom, that you can't make yourself righteous by acting a certain way, that whatever can be achieved, whatever can be gifted, whatever can be attained, has to come from God by fiat. When Paul preaches this, the classic reaction of the Christian is to say, then why go to church? What's the point, Father Mark? Why should I even do this if none of it matters? So that's the struggle that we have here in the text. That's exactly the struggle. And the answer is very simple. I gave this answer to someone recently. When you're hungry, why do you eat? That's the question I asked them. And everyone knows the answer to the question. There's no philosophy behind it. When you're hungry, you eat because you're hungry. You don't ask, what's the point of eating since life doesn't matter? the most narcissistic or nihilistic person still puts food in their mouth. So the question the gospel is posing to you, and the question that Ecclesiastes is posing to you, since by impulse, without question or philosophy, you shove food in your mouth, why wouldn't you put food in the mouth of your neighbor? That's the underlying question. As you said last week, very forcefully, it's not about why. That's an invalid question. It's about filling Vanity, the space that vanity creates with love and with the Torah. But people choose to hate life because they're selfish, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. 
Yet shall he have rule over all of my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. You can do all your work and create all these things, but if people don't take care of them, they're going to crumble. Look at the United States. Generations after generations after generations of Native Americans built lives for themselves, pursued wisdom. And then a new people come in without wisdom and just erase them. What did those people for generations pursue? They worked hard. It was all vexation of spirit. It was all difficulties for them. And the foolish results and the wise results both go into the dirt. And this makes him crazy. So what's the point of doing anything? What's the point of working? If I work hard and I get all this stuff, and then I have to give that stuff, and who knows, maybe my kid's going to be a deadbeat, a cocaine addict, and he's going to go snort all my living up in his nose. But yet, he's writing this text. That's the key point. He's writing this text because the portion that he has chosen for the generation not yet born is the wisdom of God. What he's saying is that the only hope for the future is not that what I wrought with my hand is preserved, but that what I discovered through my vain strivings is passed on so that the generation not yet born would save time and not waste their life in vain strivings. So again, it's pointing toward wisdom, but not wisdom for the sake of the individual, wisdom for the sake of the possibility of love when you accept the sanity of knowing your insignificance and your futility. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. So he decided he was going to just become morose. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and equity, yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and great evil. People work, and then the next generation, they get it, and they squander it. They don't get anything out of it. This is why Warren Buffett chose not to will anything to his children because he wanted his children to earn their own living. Here he's saying, what's the point of passing it down? Who knows, you may be passing it down to deadbeats. You are passing it on to deadbeats. That's the point. Right, that's true. It doesn't matter if his children are wise, they're still deadbeats. <laughs> right. And the stuff he passes on is still worthless. That's his point. Which means his labor was useless and worthless, which meant that he strove and he worked and he stayed up late at night for no good reason. This is why the life that we live under capitalism is anti-godly. It's anti-godly. A man is what he does, but what he does must not be about the acquisition of wealth or the building of empires. What he does must be about love. So if you are about the acquisition of wealth, you will be buried with your wealth, which even the fool, Alexander the Great, and he's a fool in the eyes of the Bible, even the fool Alexander the Great understood this at the end of his life. You can't take any of it with you. You can't take it with you. You're going to the grave, and whatever you worked, however you strove, there's nothing going to be left. For all his days are sorrows, and his travel grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. So he's saying, all right, so if working my tail off to make this life for myself and to establish myself and to give an inheritance to my children is just a pain in the neck and has no point, all right, fine, then I'll just drink, eat, and the God-given pleasure I get from eating and drinking, that's going to be enough. Whatever minimal amount of 
enjoyment I can get from being alive, that's all I get for being alive. But this is the point. Again, I want to go back to this question about the stupidity of asking why. It's the most selfish, ignorant, self-involved question with respect to the meaning of life. You can't ask that question because there's no answer to that question. You eat because you're hungry. And if you are a godly person, you love your child because your child is crying. You feed your neighbor because your neighbor is hungry. It's not a question of why, it's a question of impulse. You are obedient. And scripture is the campaign of our elders to help us understand as early in our life and as quickly as possible that the only thing that matters is to make the needs of others our impulse and to make appreciation for what we enjoy our impulse. It's about being thankful, Eucharistia, Eucharist, and about duty. It's about piety, which is our duty to children, our duty to the community, our duty to others, to make sure that just as we enjoy the daily bread in the hands of God, they also share in the daily bread. What else is there under the sun? For who can eat? Or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. You know, you talk about that void. You know, once you realize it's all vanity and you're just going to die anyway, you've got a void. Like you say, the people you talk to. So what's the point? And he's saying, eh, no point. I'm just going to eat and drink until I die. Because because I have to, like the biological impulse that you mentioned. Because I'm here. I'm, I mean, this is my point. You're here. It's such a stupid question. You know you're hungry, so you have to eat. Why am I here? I mean, it's a dumb question. You're here because you're here. And here he's saying, there is no point beyond eating and drinking. So I'll just eat and drink. For God giveth to a man what is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he gives travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. So he's saying, well, you know, if God likes you, he gives you lots of food and drink. If he doesn't like you, then he gives you a bunch of work you have to do because work is miserable. I'm the king. How much better is that? I read this with a little bit of sarcasm because when God gives to a man that's good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy, the sinner he gives travail, but he was just saying himself, he tried travail and it was lousy and he's the king. Now he's got all this food and drink. So I think he's saying it with a bit of sarcasm. Meaning, for God gives a man what is good in his sight and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he gives travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. So if God gives wisdom and an easy life to one and gives vexation and travail to the other one, in the end, who even cares about that? What's the difference between the one who is righteous and the one who is a sinner. You can say, oh, this poor guy, you know, kind of like Job. Oh, this poor guy, God gave him a hard life. He must be a really horrible guy. Oh, this guy, he's really succeeding. He must really know what he's doing. That's really great. God must look upon him with great favor. But guess what? Whatever favor, whatever work, whatever sinner, whatever virtuous person, they're all going away. It is all vanity and vexation. of spirit. This is what Paul says in Romans, and this is why no one understands the gospel, because he's saying your sins don't matter, but because God, who is merciful, chose to make the stumbling of Israel a witness for his Torah to the Gentiles. He made out of something that is irrelevant, which is your sin, 
something useful. It's not about the individual sin. It's about the possibility of life for all of creation, for the totality, which includes all the nations and all of the different creatures, and even the plants, and even the air that we breathe. This is God's objective in scripture. And so when Paul is talking about sin, we narcissistically start obsessing about how we talk to our auntie. But how we talk to our auntie is immaterial because our auntie and we are gone already. We're already gone. The question is the life of the world. That's what's going on here. So here, when he says this is also vanity and vexation of spirit, again, he is undercutting individualism. He's undercutting even piety. This is explosive in my mind because he's saying God favors one person and doesn't favor the other person. Even this doesn't matter. What does your temple ritual achieve for you? What do you gain by following the law? It's a big question. Is the Torah about you? I mean, if you are careful to follow all of God's requirements, is it so that you gain something? And I say that Paul says, absolutely not. And that is why Israel missed the point. Because they coveted the Torah for themselves as though it was an investment in their account. And that's why this metaphor of the tomb in the New Testament is a big deal. It pertains to Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it just dynamites the foundation of any kind of conversation you want to have. Bobby Knight who was a great coach, great basketball coach, but a really horrible human being. So on balance, was he a good person or a bad person? All his cruel deeds, all his great basketball deeds, they're all going to the dust. So it doesn't matter if he was a good guy or not. Ends the conversation really quickly. And a lot of the conversations people want to say, is this person successful? Is this person good? Is this person a failure? Is this person a horrible person? Whatever, doesn't matter. Oh, this person's horrible. We're going to execute them. This person is great. They died a great death. Guess what? They're both buried in the same cemetery. This is what is really shocking to us because it undermines any idea of virtue. If the murderer who is executed ends up in the same cemetery as Mother Teresa, who cares? This dynamites the foundation of any conversation of virtue. No matter what he does, it's all vanity. He kept being brought back to the same spot. He's going to die, and there's going to be nothing of him or his labor left. Thank you very much, Father. Have a great week. Thanks, you too. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.